structure does create constraints around the story, but it also provides the shape that we then get to build within. Structure helps us choose a shape that focuses the story into something that we can actually work with and make real. Something with a moving and articulated and breathing body. Welcome to The Inspirited Word, the podcast for visionary writers ready to stop second-guessing their storytelling and ready to start breathing life and spirit back into their craft. I'm writer and editor Mary Lanham, and I'll be your host and fellow seeker as we rediscover the true power of our work, our words, and maybe even ourselves. Hey friend, and thanks for being here for today's episode. I'm Mary, and I hope you're doing well whenever and wherever you're listening. First off this month, I have a little bit of just housekeeping to cover. Up until now, I have been managing the newsletter for this podcast through my own website, but I would like to experiment for at least a little while with also hosting the monthly writing tips on Substack, just to see if that platform feels like a good fit as the podcast community grows. So if you're currently a member of the newsletter circle, if you're a subscriber in your email, (laughs) you don't have to make any changes to the way you get those updates unless you want to. But if you do use the Substack app, I'll be sending out an email uh, next week with the official links to switch over if you'd like to. And for folks who might want to join the circle now and to get those monthly updates and exclusive tips, tools, and bonus resources right in your inbox, there are now two links in the show notes. So you can select Substack if you'd like to sign up that way. Um, At some point after I've gathered some data points, I am going to be settling on just one way to deliver the newsletter content, but I promise that when the time comes, you won't have to do anything to stay subscribed. It'll switch you over automatically to whichever platform I end up using, and I will give everybody a heads up before the delivery format changes. And if you're sitting there thinking, Mary, what is Substack? Please, dear God, don't make me download another app. If you're shaking your fist at the sky, too many apps. Um, that's that's how I feel about apps anyway. <laughs> Even if I do end up switching to Substack, you will not ever have to use their app if you don't want to. The bonus content will still go out every month as an email. It'll just look a little bit different in your inbox. Okay, housekeeping done. So this month, I want to talk about a core element of the writing craft, story structure and specifically how we as writers tend to relate to the idea of story structure and how we work it into our process. There's a recurring meme in writer culture about whether one is a plotter or a pantser. Plotters are defined as people who are good with story structure and who prefer to plot out their full story before they draft, usually with some kind of detailed plot outline. Pantsers, on the other hand, are people who don't create a plot or a structural outline and instead just kind of fly by the seat of their pants during the first draft, hence the name pantser. This dichotomy can genuinely sometimes be useful to think about, especially if you're new to writing a book-length work and you're sort of considering how you want to go about that process. 
But I find that taking this dichotomy too seriously can more often than not lead to some sort of weird hangups. And just from my personal experience, I tend to identify more naturally as a pantser, and that has definitely caused me some problems in the past. Most of us, I think, really fall somewhere in between, and most writers benefit from being open to a little bit of both, a little bit of plotting and a little bit of pantsing. Ooh, pantsing, that means something different, not literal pantsing. I definitely do not encourage the inclusion of elementary school bullying techniques in your writing process. <laughs> Regardless of where you naturally tend to fall on that scale between plotting and pantsing, <laughs> the, the meme can lead to a false sense that you're either supposed to create an extremely detailed scene-by-scene -scene outline with like colored time charts and full character biographies, or you're supposed to just dive in and draft until you somehow end up with a novel, or a memoir, or a book of essays, or whatever your goal manuscript is. And I think that, again, that, that that false sense of having to commit to one path or the other can really hold us back. The plotter versus pantser divide is closely related to another set of ideas about story structure itself and how the structure of a story relates to the content of a story. I think writers often conceptualize story structure in one of two ways. Number one, as a set of rigid, almost mechanical instructions on how to put a story together, quote, correctly. Or number two, as a sort of organic, intuitive outgrowth of the themes, symbols, and artistic devices within the story. You might be able to guess from those descriptions that I usually see the number one approach most often for mainstream writing and the number two approach most often for literary writing. And I talked about a similar sort of binary back in the episode on whether stories need to have a message. I'm simplifying a bit here in that, of course, plenty of genre fiction writers think about symbolism and about artful literary devices. And there are plenty of literary style stories that use a fairly standard structure of rising action, story climax, and falling action. But I think it's useful to look at the two extremes in style in order to start sifting through the way we as individual writers relate to structure in our writing process. Looking at that number one approach, the most extreme example would be something like a ghostwriter creating the next installment of a mainstream popular novel series, the kind of situation where readers are already loyal to the established style of that series. So they're looking for a very specific kind of standardized reading experience. And I have actually done editing work at that end of the scale. And in this context, the story structure is in fact very rigid and is typically even used to determine things like character development. Basically, if you're writing toward a story structure that must have a dramatic action-based midpoint somewhere around chapter 15, <laughs> and where the hero must overcome a personal obstacle to beat the villain in a showdown around chapter 25, you have to be writing about a main character who fits into that very rigid structure. Looking at the number two approach, a very extreme or maybe pure example of that style would be writing a literary story where you don't even think about structure until you've written a first draft, 
or at least not until pretty late into that first draft. The expectation is that you're only going to follow that typical rising and falling action arc if it turns out to fit the characters and story events that emerge during your drafting. And if it turns out that that arc doesn't fit, you'll come up with the structure based on whatever patterns you start to see in the draft. An example of this might be a final structure that divides the book into three parts, each narrated by a different character and following its own sort of separate but loosely connected plotline. The book as a whole doesn't follow a single rising and falling arc of action, but instead it's held together by the way the themes of the story run through and connect each of those sections. And I've got several literary novels on my shelf that follow this exact structure, which just goes to show that literary fiction has formulas and tropes too. Moving away from these two very opposed examples, I think a lot of writing falls somewhere in the middle. Like with the plotter versus pantser dichotomy, if we get too overly attached to one side of this essentially made-up divide, we can end up holding ourselves back. In my own experience, I find it a lot easier to break out of my personal attachments and hang-ups about the writing process when I'm wearing my editor hat instead of my writer hat. Uh, Which is good, because if I couldn't break those personal assumptions, then I would be a pretty terrible editor. (laughs) When I was first training to do novel edits, I noticed that I was approaching the work in a way that I had never really used to approach my own work, even during revisions. And just to clarify, I'm talking here about doing big picture edits to the story or developmental editing, and not about like sentence level changes to the specific wording, which is copy editing. I think in the developmental stage, an editor's job is fundamentally this, to tease out what questions the story is asking, and then to identify which questions are already being answered in the current draft, and which ones haven't been fully developed yet. Something I've also noticed through editing is that different types of story structure ask different types of questions. No matter what story structure you're writing within, it's going to impose certain parameters or constraints on what you can do on the page. Going back to the example of the novel that's being written to adhere to a really strict rising and falling action arc, Once you choose that structure, the shape and content of the story needs to fit inside it for the novel to ultimately make sense and to kind of tick on that mechanical level. And part of the reason for this is that a rising and falling action arc is asking a particular series of escalating questions based around a core question of just what happens next or how will the hero win if it's also a hero's journey. That's what the structure fundamentally encourages readers to ask as they move through the story and experience it. And of course, there will be other questions in the story as well. The plot arc isn't, you know, the only thing on the page. You can do interesting character development within an arc style structure, and you can play with symbols and explore themes and write devastatingly cool sentences. (laughs) But the most fundamental question that you have to answer is always going to be, what happens next? Taking the example of that literary structure with the three story sections with disconnected plots, in that kind of structure, the core question is going to be pretty different. 
It might be something like, will these characters reconcile? Or why is this pattern repeating? And as with the arc story, there will be other plot-based questions within that more literary focus. Like, there probably has to be some amount of what happens next. But the structure dictates that the most fundamental question in that story is not going to be what happens or how does the hero win. I just used the word dictates, but I think looking at structure from this angle of asking certain questions reveals how story structure actually gives us freedom within our storytelling. Structure does create constraints around the story, but it also provides the shape that we then get to build within. Structure helps us choose a shape that focuses the story into something that we can actually work with and make real, something tangible we can then play with and explore, something with a moving and articulated and breathing body. So story structure isn't just a set of plot points in an outline. It's the skeleton of the story's body. And because different types of story bodies are articulated in different ways, they also articulate different types of questions. Looking at structure in this light, I've come up with a sort of working theory about story structure. The ideal structure for your story is whatever set of constraints gives you the most freedom to explore what actually matters to you. To explain what I mean, I'm going to reference a project I recently worked on with a coaching client, and this client has authorized me to talk about her work here, so no worries that I'm like turning clients into fodder for this podcast, or at least not without their permission. <laughs> This writer has a real knack for creating moving character arcs and for really lyrical prose, but most of her drafts for previous novels had fallen into the draft until you somehow have a book camp with some mixed results. So we decided to work through an outline process together. The first step of this was to talk about her vision for the project and to settle on exactly what kind of structure to aim for within her outline. She had the beginnings of a really interesting cast of characters, and she knew what emotional and philosophical themes those character arcs were going to explore. And she also had a really cool starting point for some kind of like, maybe magic realist or maybe fantasy plot, but she didn't have a lot of the subsequent plot points in mind yet. So with this starting point, there were several different directions to potentially go in for the story. We could have opted for a more literary structure, keeping those structural questions more tightly focused on the character development and the themes, and, you know, less on, like, an action-based plot. But it became clear pretty quickly that an action-based rising and falling arc actually was the best fit for her vision, because the question that she was most interested in exploring was, what would actually happen to these characters <laughs> once the story went into motion? Or, in other words, how would the main character beat the villain? This is not to say that all those great emotional arcs and themes went by the wayside. Once we knew what questions to ask to get to the story structure she wanted, that shape allowed her to weave all of that emotional nuance right into the fabric of the story, all while building something that would actually answer that primary question of what happens next. 
instead of kind of getting lost in the beautiful thematic weeds of the draft. So this is how the constraints of structure can actually give us freedom. Structure creates the parameters we need to actually focus on the areas we want to explore. And that's both in terms of exploring the world of the story, and it can mean exploring the skill sets that we want to develop and flex as writers. And this doesn't just apply to so-called pantsers who might be wanting to expand their skill set in structure and plot. Even if you're naturally inclined to making outlines, there's always more to play with and unlock when it comes to structure. Like I said earlier, the rising and falling arc is by no means the only option if you want to prioritize structure in your work. One great resource for expanding your structure toolkit is Jane Allison's book, Meander, Spiral, Explode, Design and Pattern in Narrative. This book got a fair amount of hype when it came out in 2019, and I think it's well-deserved. Allison looks at eight different structural shapes or patterns, including the action-based arc, which she calls a wave. She illustrates each shape through a handful of example stories, analyzing how they might be mapped onto that structural shape. These structures are all based in patterns from nature, and the book serves as essentially a call to reset the Western cultural assumption that the arc or the wave is the true natural form for storytelling. I'm not going to dive in depth into all the forms discussed in the book because really you should just read the book if your curiosity is at all piqued by the summary I just gave. But I will just briefly list the shapes that she talks about, just to give you an idea of what kinds of structure or story bodies Allison looks at. She talks about waves, wavelets, meanders, spirals, radials and explosions, networks, fractals, and the evocatively named tsunami. This, in turn, brings me to the second half of what I want to talk about today with story structure, and with how being more aware of and intentional with structure can change the way we write. As much as I like and recommend Meander, Spiral, Explode, I do have one critique of it that made me realize something I hadn't really fully formulated before about storytelling structure. This book ticks so many items on my list of creative interests, at least on paper, poetic but accessible prose, check. Unusual, insightful, and inspiring craft analysis, also check. As I was reading, though, I gradually had to admit something to myself. I was indeed very interested in what this book has to say, but something about it was just bugging me. I was actually starting to feel like a little bit anxious or even bummed out as I read, in addition to being inspired to write, which is a pretty weird emotional combination, but like not entirely unfamiliar. (laughs) It took me a bit of thought to figure out what the source of that reaction was. But when I did, I was quickly reminded of making the episode of this podcast on the potential pitfalls of overemphasizing the meaning of suffering in art. Because here's my main issue with Meander, Spiral, Explode. The majority of the example stories Allison analyzes are, how to put this politely, um, they're pretty fucking grim. <laughs> 
And that adds what I think is a slightly troubling subtext to Allison's arguments about form and storytelling. I don't mean to say that the stories she includes are grim in the sense of being bad or lacking in artistic value. She's drawing directly from the modern literary canon to get her example stories, and those stories are considered canon for very good reasons. And just speaking more generally, there's obviously nothing wrong with any one individual story being grim or about difficult stuff. Whether it's difficult but ultimately hopeful, or just straight up difficult. I don't want to repeat myself too much from episode 8 here, but I'll just say that I'm fully aware of the power of storytelling to tackle and transform human suffering, and the power of storytelling to stand against injustice. These are two of the many reasons I think storytelling matters in the world. I think I would be remiss not to acknowledge that I'm recording this episode at a moment when entangled generational lines of trauma and violence are erupting in another brutal conflict in Gaza and Israel, a conflict that our government in the U.S. has helped fund for decades. So I'm not proposing that our creative work should ignore the reality of trauma in the world and in our own lives. If storytelling is a vocation, and I think that it is, then we have a calling to tell stories of trauma when they come to us. But also, or maybe and also, <laughs> the sheer number of example stories in Allison's book that are, on some level, pretty fucking grim, reveals just how much the standard of good literature has essentially transformed trauma and suffering into a creative ideal. Out of the 21 total stories that get an in-depth structural analysis in the book, only three of them did not center on some kind of acute trauma, grief, or loss. Plus, one story that's a little bit of a gray area, depending on how you interpret the events. The entire project of Meander, Spiral, Explode is to trace how these selected stories reveal a range of potential patterns for narrative form beyond that standard structure of the arc. And yet, if you zoom out to like the most basic or kind of bird's eye view of Allison's analysis, you can describe most of the stories she dissects with the same summary. The content of the narrative stems from a particular trauma, and then the form of the narrative is arranged around that trauma. No matter what the particular form, in most of her examples, the trauma dictates the pattern. And there's another potential implication here, one that I really doubt Allison intended. There's an implication that good writing is fundamentally writing that is about trauma. Maybe with some tender and tentative hope as well, but the trauma is really what makes the writing tick on the craft level. The trauma is what makes the writing interesting and good. In the epilogue, she sums it up this way, quote, The mostly unconventional narratives I've been discussing have dealt powerfully with core human matters, some on a grand historic scale, the horrors and legacy of the transatlantic slave trade, the near extinction of the European Jews, the toxic history of whites and Native Americans. Others dealt with intimate issues of sexual identity, love, despair, guilt, and they have found patterns other than the wave to do this. A meander or a net or explosion was simply the pattern the material needed. End quote. 
This is the hidden baseline assumption of so much literary criticism and theory about writing craft that, quote, core human matters are matters of either collective suffering and oppression or of personal tragedy. Trauma isn't just some of what makes us human and makes our stories worth telling. It's the core of storytelling. And yes, I did notice that Allison includes sexual identity and love in her list of core matters. But if one were to judge by the example text in the book, one could easily decide that sex and love are most often synonymous with violation and or devastating and inevitable breakups. I'm genuinely not saying all of this to point a finger at Jane Allison or to negate her book's insights on narrative form. I did still ultimately enjoy and get a lot out of the book, and I don't think this issue I'm seeing comes out of some flaw in Allison's analysis or her approach. I think it's just a natural result of a general standard of art that is too much in love with its own shadow. I mean, what high school or college student hasn't suffered through multiple English classes where the entire syllabus consisted of books that will make you want to stick a pencil in your eye and burn your library card? Reading that kind of story can be powerful and necessary and galvanizing. Sometimes that kind of story is even ultimately uplifting, although I don't think they're required to be. I don't think writers need to shy away from weaving their trauma into their work. But when an entire book on narrative structure doesn't even seem to be aware that it's basically a collection of ways to write about trauma, I think that's a sign that our cultural parameters for good writing have gotten a little weird. And this doesn't only affect literary fiction and nonfiction. Just as one example, look at something like grim dark fantasy stories, stories that feature senseless brutality as a core, inescapable theme. So, like Game of Thrones. <laughs> this subgenre has been consistently popular for a while now, and grim dark books are often considered to have more literary value than other genre books because they're considered more realistic. I'm going to circle back now to the working theory about story structure that I gave earlier, that the ideal structure for your story is whatever set of constraints gives you the most freedom to explore what actually matters to you. Looking at structure from this angle, I think a fundamental issue emerges. If our ideas about story structure are unknowingly centered on the idea that trauma is always the core of our most powerful stories then a huge aspect of our creative possibility on the craft level is already decided for us. If story structure is really about what kinds of questions we're asking and exploring, then any sort of static assumption about the foundations of story structure will constrain what questions we believe we're allowed to write about. I'm aware that this all might feel sort of over-the-top or like airy-fairy, <laughs> So I'm going to use myself as a concrete example, or rather I'm going to use one of my fiction projects. This particular project is a concept for a novel that I've been tinkering with for literally a decade, and it's just never developed enough traction to really get going and become a working draft. 
And just in case that 10 years with no finished draft stat (laughs) is triggering any sympathy panic attacks, I should clarify that I haven't been working on this idea for like 10 years straight. More like I've kept picking it up for a few months at a time, discovering once again that it just isn't happening, and then I'll put it down, sometimes for a year or more. But the story, it just won't leave me alone. Whenever I consider what fiction I'd really like to write next, the story is always the first thing in my mind and in my heart. So I've tried all sorts of angles and structures for it. Action-based historical fantasy, meandering, magic realism, literary vignettes. I've even considered making it sci-fi because, I mean, why not? I already tried basically every other genre I like. Maybe some spaceships will help. It's just never worked. Nothing I've begun to craft has felt like the organic, necessary body for this story. As I was thinking about my reaction to Meander, Spiral, Explode, I had a little epiphany. Always before, no matter what specific structure I was playing with, no matter what style of plot, the core of the structure was always the same. I was always writing with pain and struggle as the anchor, the thing that pulled the characters together into a moving and spinning structural constellation. When I was attempting a standard historical fantasy, I was looking for ways that my character's pain and struggle could draw them into an epic confrontation with a powerful enemy, which would then allow them to level up and demonstrate heroism. Or, in other words, I was writing an arc or a wave structure where the wave was powered by pain and struggle. When I was doing magic realism... I was looking for ways magic could be a symbolic parallel for my character's pain, erupting into their daily world and causing a slew of disruptions. So an explosion or radial structure, with pain as the epicenter. When I was doing literary vignettes, I was looking for ways to repeat certain harmonized flavors of pain within snippets of each character's point of view. So a spiral or a meander structure moving in constant response to suffering. I was always fundamentally approaching this story by asking the same kinds of questions. And honestly, I've been asking these questions in pretty much all of the fiction I've written. What is this character's deepest pain? Where did it come from? Why does it persist? How does it intersect and interact with other people's pain? What will happen next because of that? These are completely valid storytelling questions. Sometimes they are exactly the keys needed to unlock the story, to feel out the contours of its structural body. But now I'm realizing that maybe this novel I've tried to start so many times is actually not interested in those questions. Or at least, maybe it's interested in other questions more. Maybe it wants, like, a gleaming sun or a buried seed as its center of gravity, and not a black hole or a violent explosion or a riptide. I don't think I'm going to discover some totally new narrative structure when I once again return to this story. And I suspect that maybe the content of the story won't actually change that much. Like, maybe all that pain and struggle will still be part of it in the backstories of the characters and somewhat in the plot as well. But I'm pretty excited to see what shape and body the story might take 
if I stop building it around the assumption that the pain is always the core human matter, that that's the most interesting thing inside the story. Right now, I'm sort of feeling like the story may turn out to be a spiraling structure after all, which I have definitely tried before. But a story that spirals around something like hope or connection is different than a story that spirals around the trauma, even if the raw events of the plotline are roughly the same. It's different to imagine that kind of story, it's different to write, and it's different to read. It moves and breathes differently on the page. Jane Allison does actually mention this right at the end of Meander's Spiral Explode, in a chapter on David Mitchell's novel Cloud Atlas. When that novel came out, a lot of the attention around it was focused on its unconventional structure and the way that it kind of exuberantly mixes wildly different genres. It tells six completely different stories nested inside one another. Allison makes a case that the structure of the novel is built around a kind of hopeful prayer at the literal center, despite the fact that a lot of awful things happen to the characters in Cloud Atlas. And Allison argues that this is really what makes the book so compelling, what makes it literature, more so than the inventive structure alone. The real power of the story is that it's, quote, shyly earnest, moral, and moving. And I tend to agree with her. I checked out some reviews of Meander Spiral Explode before I started working on this episode, just to see if I found anyone talking about the prevalence of trauma stories in the example text. I didn't see that in any of the reviews that I read, but I did find one that firmly poo-pooed the idea that David Mitchell might have intended Cloud Atlas to be earnest and moving, because what serious and skilled storyteller would want their work to be earnest, hopeful, and moving? I mean, ew. At least for my part, I am officially coming out against any sort of barometer for literary merit that automatically puts hopeful and moving below it makes me want to rend my garments and or stick a pencil in my eye. I don't think either reaction should be automatically valued more than the other. I think what matters is how deeply we connect with a story, how it shapes us or witnesses us, and the possibilities it brings alive not how much pain that story does or doesn't contain. So I'm going to wrap things up here with a bit of a closing pep talk. Even though I just spent like 15 minutes straight talking about decentering trauma in narrative structure, if you're currently working on something that is structured around trauma, that work is brave and necessary and amazing. And if you're not writing about trauma, that's also brave and necessary and amazing. My goal with the ideas that I share in this space is never to say, like, this one thing that I happen to be thinking this month is totally correct and is applicable all of the time. So if what I talked about today doesn't mesh with the story you're currently writing, that is okay. In an earlier episode, I actually talked about narratives that don't really create room for exploring trauma and how that can hold us back. And I don't think that has to contradict anything in this episode. We all contain beautiful, contradictory multitudes, and I just want us to be more free to discover those stories and not to keep cramming ourselves or our work into a box that we might not even realize is there. 
And my goal in this space is always just to share the ways that I'm questioning my own assumptions about writing and about what it means to be a storyteller. So no matter what you're working on, if the structure is feeling restrictive or you keep hitting dead ends over and over again, maybe take a look at the way your structure is currently relating to trauma, either centering it or not, and see what new questions you might discover if you shift to a different orientation. This month's practice tip for newsletter subscribers is a bit of a companion resource for Meander Spiral Explode, although you can definitely still use it, even if you haven't read the book. I've taken each of the structural shapes that Allison analyzes, and I've given examples of the types of story questions that I think each shape is most focused on. And I've also shared some thoughts on how each of those shapes might relate to both stories that do center trauma and stories that don't. If you're not yet a newsletter subscriber and you'd like to get your hands on that resource, you can find links to join the newsletter circle by scrolling down in the show notes. And like I mentioned at the top of the episode, there's now an option to get your newsletter updates via Substack, if you so choose. Until next time, keep well, keep writing, and I'll see you in the next episode. I forgot to look up the number. How many structural shapes or patterns are in this episode of Sesame Street? <laughs> Aha! Today's episode is brought to us by the number eight. I feel like Harmonized Flavors of Pain is the name of my House of Pain cover band, but instead of being 90s white boy rap, it's like folksy spoken word, maybe? Coming soon to an insufferable open mic night near you.